and I always spent Friday night with my mum in London whenever I could. I used to go home and help clean for Passover. So what happened is that I finally acknowledged how much I loved those things and I could acknowledge in my uh, philosophical work my debt and my love for my parents. Hello and welcome to Confessions. I'm Giles Fraser. This is the podcast where I'm joined by an eminent guest to try and find out what it is that makes them tick. I'm going to try and drill down into their core beliefs to understand better who they are and what they're all about. And here today, bearing their soul in the stall to me this week, is Morris Glassman, Baron Glassman of Stoke Newington Newington and and Stamford Hill. And this is going to be a difficult interview for me because, to be honest, uh, I haven't really ever read much that Morris Glassman's ever said that I disagree with well, You'll find something. <laughs> I'm sure. Morris, so it's a pleasure to be here talking to you, mate. That's mutual. Uh, so the way this works, I've described it as a sort of desert island discs uh, about your political philosophy, but without any music. Yeah, that's a shame. <laughs> you like the music. And what I mean by that is we sort of start by just talking through where you come from and your background and how your values might have developed out of that and how they might have changed over time and all that sort of stuff. So what I quite like you to do to start with is just tell me about, I guess, your mum and dad. I mean, you're one of these people, I'm going to say this before you start talking, that is well known for, you know, going to talk to student groups. And one of the things you say to them is, when was the last time you phoned your mum? Yeah, that's how I used to begin my talks. Everybody ring home and tell your mum that you love them. Exactly, right. So tell me about your mum. Oh, my mum, well, from a, you know, it's a source of, sorry, my parents are dead, that's to begin with, and I'm from a dead tribe, which used to be a living, vivid tribe when I was growing up, which was working-class Jews from the East End, so so my mum left school at 13, um, she went to work in a, in a factory, and... You know, so she she was passionate about education, that the four of us should all go to university, and on that road was loads of tears. And both my parents, really, but my mum in particular, combined being really orthodox religious. So we had Shabbos, the Sabbath was no... We couldn't touch money, we couldn't watch telly. You know, it was lockdown, really, which was very difficult for me as a Spurs fan growing up because oh, I used to dear, miss the well, scores. I a point of disagreement to, already. Yeah, there we used are. to miss the scores. <clears throat> um, but as but we went with the sociological changes, so, you know, she was born in Stanford Hill. Um, her dad was a professor, so he was on the whole unemployed, um, illiterate man, but absolutely loved man. And the other side of the story was, was that she was labour and socialist and the family was really involved in the 1905 revolution over there in in Russia in Belarus a place called Mogilev so all the family all sides of the family came over in 1905 after the pogroms over there so I was brought up I realize now in a very curious I was brought up socialist and religious as if there was no contradiction between those things and but, in Stamford Hill no I was brought up in Palmer's Green so we moved to the North Circular I was born in Walthamstow there was a first step out of Stamford Hill was to Walthamstow and then from Walthamstow to this place, Palmer's Green, which is sort of at the apex of the North Circular. We were in smelling and hearing distance of the North Circular Road, that great river, as I call it, <laughs> that, that circles London like a like a moat. Um, and 
So I was brought up really within the, you know, Ernest Bevin said he was brought up within the bowels of the Labour movement. I was brought up within the bowels of the Jewish community of North London, went to Clapton Jewish Day School. So there, at that stage, there weren't any Jewish schools in the suburbs. So we used to be driven in back to the ancestral homeland, which was Stamford Hill. Went to school there, then went to JFS Comprehensive. But thinking back, you know, we had a Jewish Cub Scouts, we had a Jewish jazz big band full of what I didn't know then was stone dads who were just teaching the kids how to play jazz. And it's now completely disintegrated. There's hardly any Jews left there. There's very little social... But I'm just where I'm coming from. And your dad, was he the same... My, my dad was, was slightly different. His dad had a, had a business, so my dad uh, went to grammar school. So he was, uh, to all intents and purposes, perfectly educated. He could recite poetry... On the Sabbath, he used to do the Times crossword in his head because he couldn't write it down. And when the Sabbath went out, he just used... That's an abiding wow. memory of 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 him. And he, <clears throat> he, he wasn't as working class as my mum. And so, interestingly, he was uh, more liberal. He was a kind of... Uh, so the two of them together, my mum was fierce, fiercely ethical, um, very brave. My dad was, was gentle and much quieter. But between the two of them, I couldn't have been a luckier little boy. They were, they were lovely people, and they gave me, looking back, with my aunts. My mum was the eldest of five sisters who lived within a sort of six hundred yard radius of the house. So I was, I was the sort of object of devotion from these five incredibly tough, strong women. And then there was my dad pushing me to read, pushing me to write, pushing me to be a little more thoughtful. So. I mean, I, sounds a sort of perfect. Child. Well, growing up, I didn't appreciate it, so I kicked against. I really rejected the religion. I became, you know, more left wing and more liberal. In you know, in truth, looking back, quite uh, self indulgent. Um, but as a foundation of life, it was I, I was. But just the socialist blessed. Zionist type of thing that you got yeah. from your mum is was a sort of strong. Yeah, she she was socialist. The, the Zionism was 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 curious. There was no never any intention of living in Israel. That was not so. We were exiled Jews completely. I was brought up um, that way. I would say that there was a sympathy uh, for Israel that was fundamentally driven by the experience of the of the Holocaust in in our you know none neither of my parents knew growing up in the world what was happening to the Jews. So this was a shock to them both. The idea that our families were all wiped out. Um, that was a shock. So there was, I would say, a natural and instinctive... Belarus, they must, they must All of them been. gone, all of them gone. One bit of the family remains and he's now, by some weird coincidence, a lecturer in sort of computer technology at the University of York. So there's literally no one left anymore. But that family survived by going to Azerbaijan, to Baku. Oh, wow. They went east. But the rest of them, and I've been back... Uh, there was nothing left. So for my parents, this was a primal shock um, of their lives. But I w wouldn't say that that played a really big role. It was uh, strongly left and strongly religious. So the important obligations on me was to always be home on Friday night. And as my dad used to say, be nice to your mum. Whatever you're thinking, <laughs> whatever you're going through, don't forget to be nice. And that was amazing. So it was, it was, advice. it was United Synagogue. Completely, yeah, yeah. And and in Shaw, you know, we were there. Oh, we were one of those, and very strong um, keeping of the Sabbath. So it was a day of rest. So that was the one day I wasn't allowed to do my homework, 
which was but imagine nice, but you couldn't go and but i couldn't it. do anything yeah. so the intensity of the boredom on <clears throat> long summer afternoons and evenings because it was dark we couldn't turn the lights on but that was when members of the family would come round not enough boredom back. in our, not enough boredom i completely for agree so i try to impose this boredom on my children and it's really really hard yeah, there's not the same restriction. No, I haven't got the same. <laughs> you haven't got the same clout as your mum. No. <laughs> <laughs> Regrets of life. <laughs> so you took with you that sort of like um, drive for, for uh, education that you get from your dad and. Well, it was mum. My dad was more sceptical about the education because ah. he was more educated. My mum had the total devotion of someone who'd never been to school after the age of 13. See, so, yeah. And I was trouble at school. I mean, I had. That's a truthful remark. So right. my mum really fought to look, sort of keep me in school. Smoking already. Smoking, definitely smoking. And, you know, truth, smoking whatever I could get hold of, really, right. and within yeah. the constraints of Palms Green. Yeah. Um, thinking about that. Um, but my mum really kept me in school. I was sort of suspended quite a few times. I used to get into trouble. And then a teacher at my... A comprehensive school, uh, Mrs. Wagerman, who died last week, who was then deputy administrator, but she just said, Well, you're going to Cambridge. And she took me, you know, these people Mrs. changed. Wagerman. Her, Wagerman. Wagerman. Jo- Josephine Wagerman. Who cheers was, to Mrs. Wagerman. Cheers R. to R. her. I, I went to her funeral uh, three weeks ago uh, to say thank you, really, because she just said, Okay, forget all that. Um, she gave me sort of personal lessons, and, and I went to. St Catherine's College, Cambridge, to study history, and that was a bit of a shocking result. If you looked at my school record, you wouldn't have predicted that happening. And what and what was the and what was your time there like? I mean, uh, terrible. Time? I I completely reacted against it. I hated it. I've got many sources of shame, and I was a really petulant, um, but also insecure sort of adolescent. I'd never really left Palms Green, the truth okay. be told, and suddenly I turn up to. The stuff that you would have, you know, taken very easily, Coral Evensong. Yeah. It was an incredibly sort of minor public school environment, and I just I just got into music, didn't turn up to study, wanted to leave, but then my mum intervened. Well, my dad intervened and said, you simply can't leave because of what it would do to your mother and therefore what it would do to me because she would blame him for being weak, accommodating, altogether liberal. So I was stuck. So in retrospect, the people there were incredibly kind. I gave the Boutwood lecture last week at Corpus Christi College on citizenship and faith. Looking back, Cambridge were incredibly accommodating, but at that time, I just wasn't interested. So how did you grow up? I I left. I played trumpet and music for a while and realised that with a sense of total doom and tragedy and also penance, that actually studying was my vocation, that I'd kind of trashed <coughs> what I was. So I um, went to York and did a master's in political philosophy and then went to Italy and did my PhD in Florence uh, because my life has been incredibly lucky and then I could study and then I discovered Carl Polanyi, Machiavelli and began to give shape to the intuitive politics that I felt took Catholic social thought was a big part of that. Italy was a fantastic place yeah. to discover yeah, yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. And try to honour both the radicalism and the conservatism 
of my upbringing, which was so loving and supportive. So but, in many ways... The but politics... for all your talk of rebellion, it sounds like your values grow very organically out of the sort of family background that you describe. Totally. It's a, t- it's a complete expression of that. So um, I, I, in retrospect, I felt that I, I felt compelled to rebel. But the sources of my rebellion, well, there's two issues. The sources of my rebellion were incredibly superficial, you know, just to reject my parents' stuff and obviously looking at what I thought then a kind of fantasy world that bore no relation. But the other thing is I don't think I really did rebel. I always went home for Friday. I always kept good relations with my You went to from Cambridge, you went home for Friday? No, no, but when I was in London, when I came back from Cambridge and I lived away from home, I always... And I always spent Friday night with my mum um, in London whenever I could. I used to go home and help clean for Passover. So what happened is that I finally acknowledged how much I loved those things. And I could acknowledge in my uh, philosophical work my debt and my love for my parents. That And that was incredibly I guess you need to go away me. in order to find what it is that that... Yeah. Know, that, that, how I, important I used, that is. You know... My neither my mum nor my dad ever saw me really go straight. They never witnessed it. My dad died a long time ago, um, more than twenty two years ago. My mum died sort of twelve years ago. So so they never. But um, with my mum, I could at least tell her that she was right. You know, before she died. So so there are people who probably listen to this who don't know the sort of core of how your thought grows out of that. Or, or yeah. how would you how would you describe? What it is that you stand for? Well, you know, the the position roughly described as blue labour, but also I call it a politics of the of the common good. And it begins with <clears> the <throat> idea that that um, the progressive left has got human nature completely wrong, that we're social beings with a longing for attachment, a longing for love, and a desire to contribute to society. So it's a it's a socialist theory in the in the genuine sense of the world. So in technical things, goes back to Aristotle is a very important starting point for this, and, and it's and it rejects the fundamentals of capitalism because capitalism wishes to turn nature and human beings into commodities, and that's clearly such a fundamental category error, such a mistake. But that leads to the disruption of stability relationships. So a very strong stress on. On family, that's one part of it that I feel that the left don't get is that the sacrifice, duty and obligation you feel for others, it kind of pushes a bit without being dogmatic on the virtues of being faithful, that that yields, that is a part of love, but that doesn't mean that things don't work. It's just that that's a good good starting point for making... So very strong stress on the importance of relationships and then on organising, on people working together so I really came of age during the living wage campaign I worked with London citizens on living wage and I was totally happy with that and that worked with faith communities um, Catholic Muslim even Anglican wow Wow. but that that came later (laughs) on in the day Interesting. You managed to get to Coral even sung in the end. No, no, they always wanted a host this is the interesting thing they wanted to host the discussions but not actually Oh yeah, participate. Yeah, in part, oh no, that's exactly get, right. Get in the get no, into, no, they don't. They don't want to get in the mix. They get just into want to uh... into trouble. And really, when the crash came in two thousand and eight, my mum died. Then, so that all came together. So, in one way, Blue Labour was just an enormous love letter to my mum, who exactly had those yes. values. Yes. 
and I didn't at the time. So the term was coined just after your mum died, really. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. Then, exactly. Then um, there was talk. Then uh, nobody pays much attention now, but they're red Tory. Yeah, so and I was like Philip Blonde's doing <coughs> that. So I wasn't red Tory in any way, and I said I'm blue Labour, and my wife turned around and said that changes everything. That that. Oh, is that, that right? She put the finger on it. Yeah, she? she said, "Blue Labour." That's what I am. <clears throat> and so the thing, the thing just just grew from there. But there's loads of rivers, you know, run through it. In the English tradition, you've got Tawney, GDH, Cole. That whole pre 1945 Labour thing, which which was led by poor people, and was democratic, federalist, loved liberty. Um, but not things. an individual liberty, not a, not so much about individual liberty. Yeah, but that it, it, liberty grows out of a sort of strong sense of we. Yeah, that that you can't flourish as an individual without um, institutional and ethical support for that. So totally committed to religious freedom, uh, freedom of expression. These are all individual yeah. liberties, but the roots of the liberty um, are to be found in political struggle to secure liberties. They're not some metaphysical gift that was given so uh, uh, very critical of the exclusives reliance on the law to defend the liberties and needs the active democratic support of people and and catholic social thought was a big part of that obviously the history of the actual labor movement and trade union movement in getting workers recognized as partners in the economy so those are the essential rivers. That so as well as being labor. sort of Jewish and socialist, there's, there's a very strong English tradition to this Completely as well. so. I, I mean, that's related to it. So I was brought up, my my mum used to always bang it into me that only in England did the Jews live. You know, we had she had the experience that the whole extended family in Eastern Europe was, was killed. So there was something about England that she thought was very special and passed that on to me. And then studying history... It was the English Civil War. It was as if I lived through yeah. through that. Um, and the, the beginnings of sort of one form of philo-Semitism that you get in the English Civil War, I mean, for, on the on the Puritan side with yeah. Cromwell and yeah. people being... I mean, all, all of those Puritans seem to be named after Old Testament yeah. prophets, don't they? But Zechariah it's got to and... be borne in mind that from the age of around 16, I was desperately trying to forget I was Jewish. So that wasn't part of... Right, that right, came right. much later. The right. reconciliation for me, came when I was working with faith communities and I realised that they had to say I was working with people and supporting people who had just the same values as my mum and then the dignity that their faith gave them. It was their faith that meant that they weren't going to be treated just like commodities or just like servants or serfs or even slaves in the modern system. And I began to realise the ethical resources and the ethical traditions that came from faith were complementary, not hostile to the kind of society and, and that we had to work with people of faith in order to build a more democratic and So you never society. quite got to tell your mum that you'd return to the Just fold. about, but the problem is she had a terrible illness. It was called progressive supernuclear palsy. If you think about every word of that, that's when I ceased to be progressive because I realised... <laughs> 
That's that a terrible. Things, I don't know why I'm laughing it's at that. Because it's funny. I'm sorry. <laughs> because things don't only get better. It's like, you know, <clears throat> yeah, my favourite joke. That horrible D-Ream song to, from 1997. Yeah, constituency Labour parties is, you know, it's the last thing you want to hear when you go to the doctor. It's progressive. Yes. And we've got this idea that progressive, it means that everything's going to get better. Things can only get better. That the arc of history, and we've got to be on the right side. When in fact, it could go really wrong. And what stops it going wrong, and this links back to England, is that what stopped fascism in England was a very strong alliance between Labour and the Conservatives. In the It was a broad-based coalition um, that protected liberty, that protected democracy. So that had a massive effect on my, on my politics and the development of the politics. These are not today's left-wing politics, are they? I mean, I mean, there is a, there is, it's a sort of uh, the, the Corbyn Easter mm. sort of like slight metropolitan liberal mm. alliance is 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 describing something very different from where you are. Yeah, it is, but I'm not as hostile as as you would think because of my fundamental blue labour emerged out of a hostility to new labour and this really strong managerialism, technological determinism, a kind of cosmopolitan multilateral politics, but above all, a totally uncritical attitude to capitalism. That, you know, the, that essentially globalisation was to be embraced, it was inevitable. And, and so I don't view it in... In, in the normal way that you would imagine. There needs to be a reckoning with that. That's what I think is happening now. But in that reckoning, the party is becoming much more middle class, much more liberal, and that will never be accepted by the working class. It's just... So I'm looking for the dialectical synthesis that and comes after you're this. An alliance, you're an alliance builder, aren't you? That's part of your... Yeah, so I, I have very good conversations with, with John McDonnell. I'm, very, I'm really engaged with the sort of radical economic position that Labour's building without being persuaded at all by the by the more liberal legal but that's playing out over Brexit completely in the in the Labour Party I mean overwhelming majority of the new members are all for some reason supportive of the most of the greatest you know capitalist machine that's ever been invaded by the mind of human beings which is the EU which by uh, treaty how, so law, this is what I mean you and I both share uh, a sort of left-wing Brexity position yeah. and so forth. And what amazes me is there's a whole tranche of the left that have been persuaded, I think they were probably persuaded under under Blair... And whatever, Jacques Delors. And, and Jacques Delors. But at that particular time, <coughs> that actually the EU is something that's that works well with being of the left. It just completely... You know, I mean, yeah, I suppose is, I'm an old Benite in that regard. Yeah, and I, and I am too in, in that regard. But... It, it's a very important story and it's a historical, ethical, political story is that the progressive left can't make a distinction between globalisation and internationalism. So they see any form of global capitalism as inherently and essentially progressive. So the weird... And also they, they learnt over the many years of Thatcherism to dislike and be wary of their own country women and men they began to fear the working class and democratic politics <clears throat> so they retreated to a legal order that would essentially make it illegal to resist capitalism and the extraordinary thing that i live through is that that's the mainstream progressive position so it begins with a very strong distinction that i make between globalization which is essentially a form of capitalism that renders it impossible to resist the domination of the rich and the powerful that works 
exclusively in the interests of middle-class people and an internationalism where you actually can show your solidarity with people in other countries who are trying to resist those things. So spell it, I want you to spell it out a bit because one of the things that you and I will both be accused of is wanting socialism in one country. That there is a sort of... that That's what happens with the L sort of... Lexit. Little England, yeah. Little England, it, yes. yes. No, it, it, it's not. So I've just come back from two weeks with the Shia in Iraq going on this Arbayin, this pilgrimage in honour of 40 days after Imam Hussein was killed. And the incredible thing about this march is that for three people walk from hundreds of miles. They walk from Basra, they walk from Lebanon, they walk from Iran, and they're urged to leave without a penny in their pockets. They get fed and housed along the way by local communities, by Shia. It's the most extraordinary thing I've ever seen. But it's as, it's as if all we can take inspiration from is some kind of a flexible work time arrangement in the EU. You know, there's a whole world full of resistance and life yeah. that we're completely um, neglecting. I went to Krakow recently to to Poland to talk about to talk about Brexit and to say that the EU is a complete betrayal of the principles of solidarity. Solidarity was for workers' democracy representation um, in the workforce for. And when they join the EU, smash, 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 you just have to be prey to the forces, the systematic forces of finance and global capitalism as they destroy your factories, as they disrupt your life. So there's no status for, for, for work over there. So Brexit opens the possibilities of building global solidarity, of genuine international solidarity. But the thing that I think the key of this issue is they don't like democracy. They don't like the idea that we live here on this island with each other and that there's people in the country who feel that globalisation really treated them very badly, that they felt excluded, they felt humiliated. And those are the people that I really like to work with. And just to say about the referendum campaign, which keeps on coming back to me, I went to town hall meetings all over the country that were just a delight. The people, were, people understood that if they didn't vote out, they'd never be listened to again by the money and the educated elites. So this is a absolutely necessary jolt to the idea that, that you don't live with others. That's the whole thing with the social nature of the person and democracy. You've got to find a common life with others. And under the EU, it was just the domination of money and the domination of qualifications and education. And people couldn't do anything about it. So it's a the key thing is a renewal of democracy. So you've got to renew the democracy nationally and renew our solidi solidarities all over the world. What I really want to ask you about, um, you know, one of the things that Blue Labour's often described as, you know, family, faith and flag and all yeah. that sort of stuff. And I wanted to ask you something about nationalism, really, mm. and about, about the nation, because it's one of those ideas which is in... which which has a sort of... for a lot of people, especially on the left, is in low repute. Uh, I mean, I think that's probably not true of the sort of working-class left... Uh, that, mm. that 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 uh, is important to you. That, you know, very very um, keen on their country. But there is a sense in which this is something to be that the nation is something to be disparaged, something to be something to be uh, suspicious of, and so forth. That's not going to be your line, is it? No. So the first thing to say is no one ever associated with Blue Labour ever used family, faith, and flag. This was kind of put on us, and it kind of stuck. So it was Sarah, Sarah Palin talked about it and it's uh, actually a trilogy that's quite associated with fascism not um, third way movements to coin the phrase in Europe in the 20s and the 30s um, 
So, so recognizing the importance of family in people's lives and the resources and commitments that faith can bring to democratic politics um, is important. But let's just get to 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 the flag. So, it remains the case that the the nation is the decision making point of politics. That that's the democratic unit, and that there is a history there. So, um, speaking here for Blue Labour. We completely take the colonial part of the history, the repressive part of the history, as part of the story of resistance. But also, you know, to, to go back to what my mum said, that there are wonderful things to be treasured about English and British history, not, not least Parliament, not least the common law, not least the emergence of a Labour movement that could resist uh, and win, and the nature of our democratic struggle, which is uh, genuinely inspiring. So... Yeah, to renew ourselves as a democratic nation is the And the nation-state is the sort of upper limit of democratic yeah, legitimacy, isn't exactly. it? exactly. But also to reconstitute the body politic. That's an enormous part of so working on these ideas of the parish commune, of a local decision-making. And that brings together the church history, that the church was present in every place. And also the commune element, that there's a democratic local assembly. So if things could be decided locally in assemblies relating to education, relating to housing, that would be a real renewal of the polity. But also there's the vocation, the renewal of the counties um, and these aspects um, of it. So, yeah. So And then you can only have an internationalism if you're coming from somewhere, if you're representative of something, if you're if you genuinely have a body and a leadership that represents that body. So the politics of um, of England and the politics of the nation are, are, are a central part, and I don't cease and we don't cease to be inspired by the stories that we find there of radicalism, stories of resistance, that all take place within the frame of Parliament and the frame of the you, national you institutions. You say England there, so what about... Uh, would you would you have would you have uh, understood Scottish independence, for instance? Uh, n- n- not particularly. It's just important to say that the union, the act of union, uh, where we're coming from, was a great thing for Scotland too. That 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 this has been a very good union. I love the fact that we're a multinational country. I think that's fundamental to the story where no nation can dominate, and it's always put also put a constraint on. English chauvinism, that's really important. But I, I completely reject the Scottish national, Scottish nationalism stuff which demonises England, demonises the English. I found that referendum extremely ugly in that regard, but it was great that we won. Not a united Ireland. You, you, you still believe in the... Uh, well, this is getting... so. It's getting uh, quite... I'm going, no, I am getting... Yeah. But I'm talking... I suppose no, I'm talking no, about I get the it. union, really. I get it. So there's got to be a referendum now in Northern Ireland. This is the solution. And they've got to, you know... They've got to be put the choice out the EU in the United Kingdom or a united Ireland inside the EU. If you want to know, my actual position is a united Ireland outside the EU. That's what I'd really <laughs> like to see. <laughs> yes, and, and that's yes. what my politics moves to. Yes. But that's not yeah, this yeah. agenda should be quite simple and yeah. and resolve um, that issue. But I do think that Ireland is being craven to the EU and it's being used by the EU. When, in fact, if you look at the history of of the British Isles and the and the island and Ireland, um, there was free movement between the countries. You could vote. Um, all of this, all the excellent relations that were developed um, after independence between Britain and Ireland, are in fact being used by the EU as uh, in order to stop Brexit and 
that's bad. I mean, the one thing that bothers me about it, and where we, you and I, that maybe there's a little bit of difference between you and I, is when it comes to immigration on this, because um, I have a sort of my instincts are much more uh, open, open bordersy. I mean, particularly more uh, with regard to those who are vulnerable, and uh, I sort of, um, I mean, I'm I'm not so bothered by you know, um, doctors being able to work here and there and, and, and very sort of like particularly educated people. But actually people who are running away from, say, places in northern Iraq where, you know, uh, there's been such violence. I think we should, I think we have a moral obligation to, to be open to people like that. Where do we, do we differ on that? Where do we no, differ on so, that? so this is, this is a really important issue and, and we've got to sort it out. And I think this is the best place to sort it out. Um, what I'm saying is, is and what I what I said, is that immigration is a political issue. It has to be discussed publicly and politically, and you can't retreat behind globalization and human rights law as people's communities and lives are being utterly transformed. And I think my experience is the instinct of the people is they understand first of all that we need to show solidarity to people in distress. That I think that could be one politically, but there was an aspect of this. Um, in relation to free movement within the EU that was just undercutting workers' pay and conditions. And there wasn't a move in the labour movement. It was very difficult to organise immigrants into trade unions. So there was a huge aspect of this where it was workers at cheaper rates. So this was a form of, of capitalism that disrupted solidarity. Now, human beings are social beings. It takes time to build the institutions of that. So essentially what the EU represented was unrelenting rates of immigration about which you could do nothing. So my position is you've got to be very strong, go out, say immigration is necessary. Also, we need to build common institutions, particularly within the, uh, within the labour movement that can stand up for people's human status in the labour market. So immigration is a, is a necessary and has always been a necessary part of life. What my concern was, by removing it from politics, there was a hostility growing to it, and it's still my concern that it, it's about the rise of a populist right, which we've seen in America and which we, we could see here. And the essential condition for challenging that is to say that, yeah, there's things you can do about it. So if you want people coming from, um, from Kurdish Syria... That's an argument to be made publicly and politically, but not dressed up as an eternal form of legal order. It's a, it's so it's to bring um, the immigration into the mainstream politics and then make a very strong argument for solidarity with immigrants, but also the building of a common life. So there's a big streak in this that resists multiculturalism. I see very divided cities in our country with very ugly politics around it. So the big challenge ahead is how to build in the small towns and the small cities a sense of a common fate, a common life between communities that are essentially divided between white and brown. You know, that's what I'm seeing. Um, so I don't think that there is a fundamental uh, difference between us. My, my instincts and my starting point are those of love, sympathy and solidarity, but it's, it's important that that's viewed politically and not taken out the political sphere because there's this important component where it undercuts solidarity and undercuts also people's wages and and the and, and the way in which the accusation racism is is used mm. when uh, whether applied to this debate is often entirely unhelpful 
Well, yeah, but it, it's remorseless. So that was my experience. I tried to raise the issue seven, eight years ago. And you'd think, you know, for me, in my vanity, I thought, well, I'd worked for the last 10, 12 years with immigrant organisations through London Citizens. Living wage was overwhelmingly run by by immigrants. There's no way this could be, but there it came. still penned on there you. It came. You're a racist. And yeah. so I had to take it uh, and, and really stand by it because if they went for me, thank goodness knows how they were going to take to people who were just expressing normal concerns. And that's what happened. People don't get it. That's what happened in, in the Brexit vote. They say, oh, it's, all, it's all racist and it's all anti women No, it was an assertion that through politics, you could slow down the rate of change, you could build different solutions. So I didn't perceive an overwhelmingly anti-immigrant sentiment. I just perceived a democratic sentiment that wished to... That the people were concerned about the conditions of their life in the economy, on their streets, in the communities where they lived, and that's completely legitimate. You talked about human rights just mm. just a moment ago, and I'm interested in the way in which the language of human rights or the moral language of human rights has a particular um, has a, a sort of particular sense of what human beings are like, which is is fairly deracinated mm. and and unconnected. And I have a I have a, I have a problem with. That the, the only using human rights as our sort of moral language uh, when there's so many other moral languages that we could choose. Exactly. I mean, I, I imagine you're in a similar position to that. Yeah, so I've seen... So we all support human rights. This is, yeah, yeah, this yeah, is yeah, the yeah. nutty thing about it, is that we, there's human beings are sacred. There's things you shouldn't do to them. Um, nobody should be tortured. Nobody should be humiliated. These, these are all matters of fundamental consensus but it's but that's not what human rights mean human rights mean a specific liberal order which excludes democracy from making decisions that you so immigration would be an example human rights law demands that you have to accept um the immigrants but there's also issues about family life about transsexuality that if you engage in a political discussion about it you're seen as opposing human rights and you're seen as being abusive so it's become in fact a a tinnied liberal agenda that wishes to hive things out of a democratic political discussion. So entirely unhelpful and on the whole um, quite nasty because it tries, you know, there's no one more exclusive than those who believe in inclusivity. These are blue labour walls, you know. No one more into intolerant than those who uphold toleration. And human rights is a way... Um, that you don't do the politics. If you want to build a society based on liberty and democracy, you've got to go out and build coalitions and, and build political movements. You can't rely on lawyers. But isn't but isn't the sort of politics that you describe and and that you regret that, um, uh, extremely prominent in the Labour Party? I mean, that's the sort of uh, that's that's the politics that's there. And those of us, you and I, who are who is sort of just about? Well, I'm just about in the Labour Party. You're a Labour peer, but um, uh, who who find myself like increasingly feeling on the edge and alienated from the sort of discussion yeah, that's had. But it's, how it's, did it happen? How did it come to be like this? Oh, it's it's a it's a combination of things. I don't think that's an entirely inclusive um, analysis. I would say those people make a lot of noise that the Labour Party leadership, to some extent, is dominated by lawyers, and you know university graduates above all above all lawyers lawyers are on the whole very anti-political they think that there's legal solutions to, to all these issues also loads of you know teachers who also tend to 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 be that way but don't forget 40 uh, percent of the 
Labour vote is still working class vote. Um, they they haven't changed that the Labour Party must come into contact um, with its voters and many of the constituencies that the Labour needs are overwhelmingly leave constituencies. So I don't see it. Uh, You're not quite a Keir Starmer way. fan, are you? No. <laughs> it's, it just makes it's just it's just boring and, and makes no sense. But you know, in that sense, I am a John McDonnell fan. Yes, I mean, don't yes. forget that Labour's position is to leave the EU. Yes, absolutely. And um, that that. I mean, the party conference, it was clear, you know, it was like at least 90% of the membership were quite fanatically supportive of Remain. But John McDonnell stood up and said, yeah, people's vote, yeah, it's called a general election and the choice is going to be between a Tory Brexit and a Labour Brexit. And that's party position. So, you know, the reaction to the to the new Labour years is going to take a while, but it's it's very important to assert that the overwhelming body of the Labour tradition was Brexit. We're bringing out a book, Clement Attlee, Ernest Bevan, Aniron Bevan, Barbara Castle, Peter Shaw, Michael Fort, Jeremy Corbyn, Tony Benn, Dennis Healy. All their best work was why the EU is a fundamental capitalist, anti-democratic organisation. And that will be reasserted and it is still actually the party position. So... There's um, liberals and people who went to university. They, they they are very verbal and they make a huge amount of noise. It's a pleasure to be on this quiet podcast, which <laughs> which, which resists the domination of that. Well, but, unfortunately, I'm trying to make more noise, but I dis- I agree with you. So but, it's hard. But the for dominant me. thing, you know, um, I read that on the night of the Brexit vote, they, the BBC couldn't find a single person in Broadcasting House who supported Brexit. You know, these are echo chambers of of liberalism. Um, and The Guardian and The Guardian the same. But on the streets, it's not like that. And, well, I'm telling you also in the Labour Party, it's not like that. I get invited to Momentum. I get invited to constituency parties. And there's a genuine discussion about it. I mean, there's always going to be 20% of people who say it's fascist, it's racist, and, and get into an incredible huff. But then when that passes, a politician... So I think... you know, Jeremy's a Brexiter, isn't he? I think so. I mean, he, he, we've got a speech from him we're going to publish from sort of seven years ago, eight years ago, That's that just nails the EU for what it is. He's trying... He's a bit Harold Wilson-y. He's trying to, you know, keep things together. He doesn't want to piss off the entire membership. That's completely understandable. I think John McDonnell is more aggressively because he understands that, you know, none of Labour Party's manifesto could be implemented within the framework of the EU and that in many ways the people have already moved to Brexit. They're already thinking about the argument is already brewing between liberal globalisers and national Democrats and and that Labour's really wishes to use the state to have an industrial policy for redistribution, for nationalisation. All of this is completely against Maastricht and Lisbon. Um, So, yeah, so I'm just saying that there's a genuine subterranean discussion going on there that we've got to get stuck into rather than just, oh, my God, walking away. Jeremy Corbyn and anti-Semitism. How's that all played out? I mean, you must have strong views about that. Yeah, I, I, I do. I tend. It's not my. It's not the thing that I tend to battle about. I think that there is a streak um, on the left, and always has been a streak on the left. That is essentially, you know, the protocols of the elders of Zion: that Jews yeah. control finance, that Jews control banking. A, there's a secret conspiracy to control the world. I mean, it was Babel. You know, he was related to to Marx, who said that anti-Semitism is the socialism of fools. You know, that's 
that's been there. That came through in in the Russian Revolution when, in the end, they brought in Jewish quotas, and and then there's the additional aspect of Zionism, um, where Israel is seen as a colonial state supported by the United States and that the Jewish community in the United States controls United States foreign policy. So a a central view of a Jewish conspiracy that's carried um, on the left and that's carried in in uh, the Muslim community is kind of true. So that's that's one side of it where I think it really is real. But on the other side, I've got my conversation with the Jewish community about showing some solidarity with the poor and asking themselves which side they're on in in this battle and looking what happened to my family happened to the Jewish community. We used to be poor, but we're not poor anymore. And not to retreat into the suburbs and into exclusion and have an eternal view, but to build relationships with other people, particularly on issues relating to the economy, poverty, the, Some of the rabbis are a little bit afraid of doing the political thing. Very afraid, very afraid of, of getting into trouble and, and also to recognise that we're not here as a lobby group for Israel. That's absolutely, we're here as as part of this society. So I'm a Jew of exile, you know, that you've got to build relationships, that we're essentially a weak community, we're a small community, and we need to build relationships with others on matters of... So much more important to me is this whole issue going on at the moment with Ofsted and the religious schools. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Where, you know, Hasidic Jews who who carry an incredibly important part of the Jewish... are being told that unless they treat, teach a positive view of transsexuality, they're going to be closed down. It's... Now, this is an incredible threat to the integrity... I mean, when did... This is human rights law going... Not, when did it happen? that you had to take an uncritical view of that. Now, when it comes to the LGB, I think there's definitely room for manoeuvre. You can, you, you are obliged not to have a hateful view. And But when it comes to transsexuality, I think there's a whole public debate but to the, be but, had. The, but the whole thing, I mean, if you talk to Rabbi Pinter up in yeah. Stanford Hill and his... And his uh, his school up there. I mean, Yesterday his, his I line it. on this is that, like, look, we just don't, we just don't do sex education. It's not like we yeah, do. Yeah, well, they've but... got a really important thing, which the whole of society should be aware of about the sexualization of childhood, the commodification yeah. of of that. Um, but it's just the liberal authoritarianism that insists that everything that's that's the problem with the human rights agenda. It becomes a political agenda that's authoritarian and imposes. Um, and eliminates diversity. I don't know if you saw the other day, but that school, uh, yes, you, you to... had, uh, was uh, 19th in the uh, league tables of best schools in the country no, when it came this, out. And it's still This is an incredible, being... incredible school. So, as Lord of Stanford Hill, yes, I visited Yesterday Hatoa. Yes. Oh, you went there, yes. Oh, yes, many yes. times. Yes, yes, and yes. Um, I love Yesterday Hatoa because it's a school that educates girls. So what's the extraordinary transformation in the um, Hasidic community in Stanford Hill is that the girls now get incredible exam results. They're completely literate in English. They are absolutely functional in running the community. The power balance has changed completely towards the women when it comes to running the community because the men on the whole are completely useless in this regard. So a massive transformation in the life prospects and internal world of women has gone on through that school and that's the school they want to close down because it won't teach a positive view of transsexuality. This at least should be discussed politically and not imposed in such an... 
But the point I'm making to you is that should be the concern of Jews in this country, not um, about the West Bank or, you know, the, 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 there's things about Israel that are really terrible and that need to change and that we should be really publicly forceful um, about that and not allow that conflict to define our relations with all yep. other people. That yeah, is a catastrophe. So what is what is um what does Morris Glassman enjoy doing? What's he do, what does he do for fun rather rather than he's not just uh, um, changing the world? Oh, I'm, I'm gonna say I'm not cha- in a lot of ways. I'm trying to preserve the world. You know, that, that's the <laughs> yes, exactly. that's, uh, you know I love yeah. Parliament. You know, I want to keep Parliament as a democratic institution. I love the the Labour movement and wish to keep working class people at the forefront of that. So when I say that Blue Labour is this mixture of radical and conservative. The conservative is is really prominent. I love the common law as a means of adjudicating the legal issue rather than Napoleonic directive. So, um, so I, politics and the doing of politics, the building of relations, is 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 an enormous part of my life and an endless source of joy because you meet people, you meet people you wouldn't meet, and relationships relationships are formed. Recently I went to Iraq and I took a television camera with me to record the Arbaean, so maybe I'll make a television programme about that and that would that would be great. You know, I love... I make music, I play music and and, and play with, with other people. But ultimately, you know, I've got a wife and four children and although they really hate me... I kind of have an enormous <laughs> love for them. <laughs> you really hate me. But people say to me, what are you children, doing now? Yeah. When, if you meet people you haven't seen for ages and they say, what are you doing now? The real answer is, I'm spending time with my family and I'm enjoying time with my family. And that's actually the thing that I think I should say that more often, really, because they want to know what I'm writing. Or, no, no. But it's actually, this is, this that's is, the sort of, this it's, is, it's, it's 10% of what the, I do now. Yeah, and my children now, you know, I've got a 20-year-old, a 18-year-old, a 12-year-old, and it's just the horror of them growing up. That's what's overwhelming me. My 20-year-old is a really horrible, momentum-supporting, sort of <laughs> secular Marxist who, you know, who you thinks I'm an lot. enormous uh, sellout. And, yeah, but my, my daughter is, is really beginning to make sense of things. It, it's, a, it, it's, it's, a, it's an incredible thing. So, yeah, so I, I just like... And you get to the Spurs. Do you go to, do you go to the Spurs? I do Spurs? go to a bit. We're in exile. We're in Wembley. So it, you have to go to northwest London. It feels like a desecration every every time. So Spurs, you're not doing that well, are you? Well, we're doing better than Arsenal, and that really is okay, what matters. Okay. <laughs> I agree. We, we share a common dislike who's, of the Arsenal your thing? Chelsea. Fan. That's very bad. That's very, very, very <laughs> Overweight, bad. Overweight, short hair. What do you think? I'm a Chelsea fan. But all that wealth stolen from Russia oh, and invested don't, don't in the richest area of I put London. my fingers it's, in my ears. It's, and, uh... it's just awful. <laughs> Don't you bring your politics into bloody football. I can't keep them out. (laughs) Well, so I'm going to have to apologise to the listener because I've been a crap interviewer. I have tried as much as I can to disagree with Morris Glassman and the only thing I've found is Harry Kane, really, which uh, and Spurs and... and, Well, uh, you know... That's that's about it. Moussa Dembele. Moussa Dembele is actually the really great player at Spurs. Which has not really really, um, been very satisfactory. But uh, uh, it's always with pleasure and with profit that I... Talk to Morris Glassman and thanks very much for coming and sitting here and having a chat with me. It's great to see you. Cheers, mate. Thank you for listening to this episode of Confessions with me, Giles Fraser. If you're enjoying the podcast, please do rate and review it and do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
I'll be joined by another guest next week for another episode of Soul Bearing, and I do hope you'll tune in then. And do check out the website, unheard.com.